And I would say for those seven to 10 years, I could not get the operation to where I dreamed it could and should be. I was a good manager. And you need to be a leader to get to creating an inspired team of people, to get people to bring their very best to the workplace every single day and put it all out there. You need to be an inspiring leader. A manager does not cut it. Welcome to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods, the nation's first podcast devoted to the business and lifestyle of the hospitality industry. Now, here's your host, Woolco Foods CEO, Stephen Toberoff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods. I'm your host, Stephen Toberoff. And today my guest is someone that I am super excited to talk to for a variety of reasons. His background, his experiences, his insights is really something special. So I want to start by thanking my guest, John Daugherty of Black Barn Restaurant for taking the time to speak with me today. John, thanks a lot. You're welcome, Stephen. Thank you. It's a pleasure to to be part of your program. So John, in, in getting ready for our conversation, I did some research and your background's really incredible from from your being executive chef at the Waldorf. Would you mind just giving us a little background about how you got into the restaurant business and sort of your journey from that to, to the opening of Black Barn and, and, and the whole background? Yeah. But, you know, like so many kids in, in high school when you're 14, 15 years old, you know, you need a little cash in your pocket. So I rode my bicycle around at 14 years old to every gas station to pump gas and I, I did that through the winter, oh gosh, back in 74 or 72, I don't know whether the really long gas lines. And my buddy said, dude, you're killing yourself out there. We got we need a busboy at the restaurant. So I go to the restaurant, I get the job as a busboy, but it wasn't a busboy, it was a dishwasher. That lasted two weeks. They threw me behind the line to start cooking. I loved it. I saw the husband and wife team cooking with so much passion and love that I got the hospitality bug. I got it. I remember standing there saying to myself, wow, there's something much, much bigger going on here. I mean, I saw the love they had with their food, with their customers, with what they did. It was intoxicating at 14. And then I just through high school, I went, I got different cooking jobs. I just, then I went to the CIA We had to do our internship, externship, they called it, at the restaurant. I did that at the Waldorf. And then we graduated a year later on a Friday. I went back to work at the Waldorf on a Monday. I promised myself I would be there for at least a year. I didn't want less than a year on my resume. That would look bad. But it lasted 30 years. And so I had that covered. That's amazing. And in in looking at your Instagram page and and all of that, I mean, the the people that you that you had the opportunity to interact with at the Waldorf was incredible. What was it like cooking for presidents? Was there an added pressure? Was there an added sort of drive to do something different? Or was it just something that because of the nature of what you were doing, you you got used to over time? I never got used to it. The Waldorf, it was such a challenge. And when I when I look back, I, I sometimes I don't even know how I did it, but I did it. But remember, every company, every celebration, whether if people celebrated 20 times a year, 
they have one big event, right? And they did it at the Waldorf. If you launched a product or a show or an album, you did it at the Waldorf. So everything had a story behind it. Everything was, everybody was VIP, right? If it was a wedding or a, a social event, it was they only dreamed about doing it at the Waldorf with the history that they had. So, you know, we're competing with people's dreams and everything, everything was just so important. Right. And so when the president came, it was, yes, it was another important VIP event, but, and I was expected that I would, that the chef myself would cook for him. And it was important. It was electric. It was an honor. I was not nervous because I was cooking and that's, that's what I do. Right. So, it was pure joy, and it was an honor. And what made it stressful is that the president was always in during the UN. Well, during the UN, we also housed 20 to 25 other presidents, prime ministers, heads of state. Every function room was booked solid with VIP events, and the restaurants were full. And I was kind of chained to this little intimate six to eight person dinner as important what it was, but my head was spinning with my God, what's going on in the rest of the hotel. Now I had a great team of people and we were extremely organized and regimented, much like the military. So I had, I have lots of faith, but boy, I tell you, it was a 10 ring circus at the Waldorf. You know, it's interesting because as I was reading about that, it, it led me to think about something, which is the following. Obviously, your your training and your credentials and, and your abilities as a chef are, are at the highest level. But in the position you were at at the Waldorf, there's a tremendous component that involves managing people. What was that, what was that balance like? Because obviously you're, you're coming at it from the background of being a, a super trained chef, but now you're in a position where you have to be super excellent at execution and managing people. You couldn't be asking a better question, honestly. And that's what happens to people who do a good job. The higher ups say, wow, this, this person is doing a really good job. They would be great for this. Let's promote them so that they can get other people to do a really good job. But the fact remains that that's a whole nother skill set. And so when people, when young cooks were really good with saying to me, I want to be a sous chef, I want to be, I said, oh, slow down, learn your craft, be a great cook, become a, just become a great cook. Because once you have to start managing people and processes, there's just so much energy you have and you end up transferring your energy of learning and disciplines from cooking to managing people. And what happens so many times, I would interview people who would have taken jobs as chefs, as sous chefs and chefs in operations and really kind of stepped over the process of learning how to cook. And so when I would talk to them about cooking, I would say, dude, you don't have the skills that's required to be a chef here. And oftentimes they would say, I'll be a cook. If you can get me into a cook's position for a couple of years, then I, and I would do that. I would take people who were sous chefs or chefs in other organizations, bring them in as cooks, put them in key situations where they would really be focused on developing their cooking skills. And they were great because they already understood the management vision for what was important in running organizations. So just always sad that people would be in such a hurry to skip over that to get into management because that's what happens now. So what happened to me was something similar. 
growing up in the Waldorf, I started at 19 years old. And I worked in all the different kitchens in a la carte. I became the chef saucier. The chef said to me, I want you to become the sous chef. And I, I said, I, I really don't want to. He said, well, you think about it over the weekend. So I thought about it over the weekend. I realized, hey, I never, I didn't run banquets. I, I was not the chef garmage. Although I worked in the garmage, I wasn't the chef garmage. Remember, that's a, a department of 13, 14 people, right? So it's not as if you're a garmage on station. It's it's a department. I never worked in the pastry shop. I wanted to experience all these things. I was in no hurry to be a sous chef. I really wanted to build my foundation. So I go back into his office on Monday. He said, well, what do you think? I said, I made my decision and I want to stay as chef saucier and work other areas before I become sous chef. And he said, okay, tomorrow you are the sous chef. So that was kind of a a waste of of a, of a thought process, but he made me sous chef, and God bless him. He's he's passed away since, but he tutored me. He tutored me one on one in developing, further developing my skills, my palate, which is key. Our most important skill tool is our palate, right? And then you've got to get understanding that the the chemistry of cooking and the physics of cooking before you can begin to create food. So he really helped me do that. So I became sous chef. And then I was sous chef, executive sous chef, and, and then executive chef a few years later. And I would say for seven or eight years, I was a good manager. I developed standard operating procedures from recipes, processes, disciplines for staff to work within so that they would stay out of trouble, setting crystal clear expectations. Very, very important. And I would say for those seven to 10 years, I could not get the operation to where I dreamed it could and should be. I was a good manager. And you need to be a leader to get to creating an inspired team of people, to get people to bring their very best to the workplace every single day and put it all out there. You need to be an inspiring leader. A manager does not cut it. And I learned that through time. I kept questioning myself, why Why is it that I have to think of everything for everybody? Why is it that I'm constantly correcting people? Why am I spending so much time in union meetings, disciplining people? This is not what it should be. I, I want people to decide to do these things for themselves. And, and so I had some epiphanies over the years that didn't happen all at once, but some of the things I, I did was realizing that with 150 employees, I'm spending so little time, if any at all, with individuals outside of my key chefs, right? Seven to nine chefs and sous chefs. I would definitely spend time with them. And then like the military, leave it to them to filter down the information. But I was disconnected from the line cooks in every kitchen. So I made a commitment to myself that it, every day, morning, Noon, evening, we worked long hours, all the shifts. In every kitchen that I went into, I would have a significant interaction with one person. And so I did that. And, and by a significant interaction, I would choose a person and spend a few minutes with them. It only took a few minutes and recognize and focused on their work. So significant interactions, I defined myself by spending a few minutes with an individual and 
giving them feedback that is impactful. So by that, I would say something about their work, specifically either great or where they need to improve. And the goal for me to be impactful would mean that my words would resonate for them when they go home and say to their spouse, my God, I had no idea that the chef valued me so much with my work. Or they put their head on the pillow at night and say to themselves, I need to make some serious change quick or I'm going to lose my job. That's significant. That's a significant interaction. That's impactful. That creates energy of either pride to be able to do more good work for recognition because we all need recognition, or I've been noticed, I've been put on notice, and I need to do something. So when I started doing that, and I did it every day, and if I left the kitchen and forgot, I would go back in and fuck with something and go and have that interaction with somebody before going back to the next kitchen. Something else I had learned is that my kids were young at the time that we got ourselves a dog. It was a boxer and I love boxers and they're just so playful, but they get big fast. And when they get playful with kids, they can just knock them over. And so that's the dog was knocking their the neighborhood kids over and kids were crying. And it just, we said, well, we got to get, we got to go for dog training. We got to get this dog in shape. So we went for dog training down at the local high school. And the trainer says, first day, listen, you will not correct your dog. No matter what it does, you will ignore it. And you will only pay attention to what it does well. Like, okay, we'll see how that works, uh, right? Because as a chef, I spend my life correcting people and, and fixing things. So here's a different concept here. So she says, we're going to do commands, and we're going to recognize the dog when it does the right thing with either a food treat, your voice inflection, or petting the dog. Positive reinforcement when the dog does something right. When it does something wrong, we totally ignore it. And I'm like, I should have paid somebody to do this, to get this thing right, because this is never going to work. Well, sure enough, in four weeks, that dog was doing everything we asked it to do. And I was dumbfounded. What you're saying is really amazing, and it's, it actually corresponds perfectly with two books that I'm reading right now. The first is your management style is, is so analogous to that of Napoleon. Napoleon was somebody who had the type of mind where he could focus on any detail regardless of what was going on, but he made it a point to constantly interact with the troops. He made it a point to constantly remember people's names, to acknowledge them, to inspire, as you were saying. And that was what many people thought was his greatest advantage as a general, was the morale. The the story you're telling, one of my favorite books in business, which I reread all the time, is How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And the story you're talking about with the dog is one of the lessons in that book. And it's so power. Yes. And it's so powerful. He talks about, and just for people that are listening for what it's worth, I think it's one of the best and most important books in, in life and business that I've read, but constantly focusing on positive reinforcement as a manager, as a leader. And if somebody's doing a horrible job, of course, you have to correct them. But to the extent that you can really focus in and really celebrate and identify people's success and what they're doing right, it seems to have a very good longstanding outcome. Was And I, I would imagine that's something you observed over time as you evolved from a manager to a leader. 
Well, if you've got a few minutes, I'd love to go a little bit further. I'd love and it. tell you what I did with that information and how and what happened. I'd absolutely love yeah. that. Great. Okay. So the dog is now responding to positive information. And I say to myself, holy cow, if it works with this dumb dog, it's going to work with my kids and my staff. So I go back to work. I said, okay, okay, no more Mr. Negativity. I mean, that's my job. I got to find things wrong before the customer does, right? How am I going to do this? So, okay. So let me focus on stuff that's great. So I remember the day, I remember the moment I came across a, a sauce that was made that was so good. It was beautiful, a sauce. And I stopped everybody from working. I said, everybody get a spoon. I want you to come over here and taste this because this is perfection. And then I said to the guy next to me, Will, do me a favor and tell everybody how you made it. And this guy looks at me like, okay. So now he starts as he's talking and how is he's explaining? He's getting bigger and bigger and bigger in life. And the people looking at him. And all of a sudden, I saw what I created here. I put this guy in a pedestal. And he filled him with pride. And everybody's looking to him. And it was a great moment. Crazy. The next day, maybe next day, two days later, three days later, it kept going. People coming to me. Chef, can you taste this? Chef, when you see what we did. Chef, we rearranged the walk-in. Chef, we did this. I'm like, wow. So people craving recognition, I gave it to them. When they did great work, I recognized it publicly, brought people around to see the great work, talked about how valuable they've now made themselves to the organization. It was crazy. Within, I could count the days when we started to see a shift in the momentum of positive energy and teamwork. Unbelievable. I love so, it. Then I was like, okay, wait a sec. So shit still happens, right? I still got to deal with problems. So, okay, how am I going to do that? So you know what? I do believe that if we train everybody, we set crystal clear expectations, people know what they have to do. And when they choose not to do it, they know darn well that they're not doing it because they either don't have time, they think someone's not going to notice, they think it's just as good, blah, 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 right? So I find something that's not right. And I don't correct it. I just ask, is this what's supposed to be? Is this the standard that we've set? And the person would hesitate. Now they know they're caught. And they, they would look at it or they would taste it. They would observe it. Uh, well, chef, and out come the excuses. I said, stop, 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 stop. I don't care. I really don't care what happened. It's not important to me. What's important to me is that, number one, you fix it. And number two, you come back and tell me, what you're going to do different next time so it never happens again. See, then I created a no-fault environment. Nobody gets in trouble. We made a mistake. Fine. We learn from it. What are we going to do different next time? So, again, it just throws more of the positive energy into the fold. And I would have people fix that, come back and tell me. And honestly, I will tell you, I never had to go back to that person again for other issues. They learned in that moment that quality control was their job for their job. It was their responsibility. And I didn't see that coming either. That was another learning experience for me. So these are the things that 
changed me from a manager to a leader, an effective leader, inspiring people to be their absolute best in zero time. I mean, just listening to you, you're somebody that I would want to get behind as a leader because, I mean, everything that you're doing, I was listening closely. First, you're activating one of the core aspects of of what it means to be alive, which is to feel significant, to feel appreciated. And for someone such as yourself, the executive chef at the Waldorf, who's in a position of status, for you to be noticing, acknowledging, and interacting in a meaningful way with everybody must have just resonated throughout the entire environment in such a positive way. And second of all, I love the way that you handle correcting. I think that's something I'm going to focus on more here. When I'm working with people here in in this organization, one of the lessons or or one of the strategies that I use, which I learned from a a friend of mine from college who's a successful director, a, a theater director, interestingly enough, was kind of what you were saying, John, which is, Create and communicate clearly what expectation levels are. And in so doing, you give people the opportunity to be as creative as they want to be because there's an understood set of of requirements, objectives, baseline things. And when people deviate, there's no confusion. Whereas sometimes you have people who don't communicate clearly the expectations. And then when you correct someone, they truly are confused as to why they're being corrected because they never knew. Right. And the other thing I love about what you're saying is it really blows apart one of the myths that's out there a lot or or one of the stories, which is that chefs are constantly people that are screaming and berating and hard asses and difficult. And that that's kind of, you know, and and we can all think of those types of examples, which can be very entertaining. But your approach is one that's just 180 from that and was incredibly efficacious. So, Well, I do. And I I really do believe that there's a couple of elements that add to that temperamental chef concept. Uh, one is ego, for one, clearly. Uh, but secondly, and probably more importantly, is a lack of communication and organization. So a chef is highly focused and passionate about what he wants. And when he doesn't get it, he flips out. It's a temper tantrum, right? Because you're not doing what I said or what I thought or what I want. You are stupid, blah, 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 blah. It's, hey, set crystal clear expectations. Create a vision for what you want on that plate for a process, for how you want. Set clear, clear vision for everything, expectations. Give people the tools and support they need, training. If they can't do it, they're just not in the right spot. Put the right person in the right spot. Praise when it's right, publicly, correct, privately when it's not. There's no reason for yelling and screaming. It's demeaning and adds stress. It's a distraction from allowing people to focus on what they really need to do. Honestly, Black Barn Kitchen, people are amazed. We have a big open kitchen. There is zero talking in the kitchen. It's like a ballet. There's no reason to talk. Everybody knows exactly what they have to do, and they execute. And if it's not right, you're going to see Chef. He just takes the plate. He puts it back. He sends it back. And the cook knows if there's something not right, he looks, he sees, he fixes, he puts it back up on the pass. That's the very embodiment of great leadership where the leadership is so successful that you don't even see it in action because everyone within the organization or team has internalized it and is operating within that system. And actually, that's a great dovetail. So what was it like, John? What was the, the evolution from where you were, the executive chef at the Waldorf? What led you to the opening of Black Barn, both in terms of just your concept and, and the timing and all of that. What was that like for you? 
this is important because I dreamed, I always dreamed of having my own restaurant. And my goal was, I don't know why, but I said, to, when I'm 40, I need to be out of the Waldorf and have my own restaurant. That's the timing I put on myself. So I could be, I, I, I don't know why. I think maybe it's possible that Danielle stepped out and had his restaurant at 40, something like that. But I was like, yeah, that's, that's about the right age. But I hadn't completed everything I wanted to do at the Waldorf. So I really wasn't ready to leave. But I did start dabbling in restaurant concepts and looking at space and get this for maybe 14 years while at the Waldorf, I dabbled in looking at space concepts, developing business plans, talking to investors, trying to get myself out there. But I never did because there was always something that wasn't right. And at the end, I was like, you know what? The only thing that's not right here is me. I don't have the guts to do it. I'm too afraid of failing. I think my ego got in the way because here I had this very prestigious job and, and I didn't want to fail. But I also had a family with young kids and I was also afraid of losing the security of this great job with a great pay to support my family. So, But anyway, the time came and a couple of guys that used to work with came to me and said, hey, John, we're ready to do this restaurant. Are you in? Are you out? I was like, you know what, guys? I'm in. So we went to do this restaurant and we couldn't raise all the money. It was in 2009. So within a week, I got a call for my first consulting job and it just kept getting calls and doing things and different projects. And while I continued to look for my restaurant for about five years, I did consulting different restaurants, hotels, developing food products. Finally, I found Black Barn Space and got my restaurant opened and focused 100% on that, got the foundation going, and here we are. You know, what's interesting is like your story begins where you you go into the hospitality business and you're immediately lit up by it. You see what's going on there. It, it's it, You could tell from listening to you, it resonated in such a profound way. Then the evolution is to becoming a, a leader, not just a manager. And now the next evolution is to be an entrepreneur. Those things are, are, if you think about it, can theoretically be totally divorced from being a chef because being an entrepreneur is exactly what you said for a lot of people in a lot of circumstances, which is taking that risk. And I, I appreciate your candor because I think it's the case with, with everybody to a certain extent and certainly with most people that a lot of times we hold ourselves back out of, out of fear. And once we get honest about that, then we can sort of push through it. You know, once we stop making the excuses, which we know are just a patina to cover up the fear. So I have a lot of respect for that because, like you said, you're giving up some things that are very, very significant, prestige, economic security. And so now you made the decision, you've gone through the, the, the five years of the consulting jobs and other things that you were doing. Once you settled on Black Barn, was the concept behind it in terms of your decor, which is absolutely gorgeous. And for people that have not seen it, you should absolutely go to the website, www.blackbarnrestaurant.com. The, the decor is gorgeous. Were those elements of your restaurant, be it the decor, be it the menu, how you want to organize, were those things that you had already worked out and, and sort of executed on upon opening? Yeah. It's actually the concept that I was going to implement in 2009 that I couldn't raise the money for. And so coming from the Waldorf, where everything was 
on silver, on underliners, white glove, you know, at the formality of everything. I just, I just couldn't do anymore. It's just, it's not what I wanted. It's not how I want to eat. It's not how I thought the next generation wanted to eat. I didn't find it. The formality of dining wasn't fulfilling to me. I wanted to create an environment that was all natural. I just, I work with Mark Zepp, the designer. I said, Mark, I want raw wood. I want stone. I want metal. I want raw metal. I want to hear water trickle. I want a fireplace. By the way, I didn't get a, I didn't get water or a fireplace, but I got everything else. I want texture. I don't want tablecloths. I, I don't want waiters in jackets and ties. So everything, the concept really is to create a natural setting that helps people to relax. It's organic. It helps people be themselves and not fit into an environment that they're maybe they're, they've got to step up to. So an organic environment helps people be, be themselves to enjoy the food, the wine. I still wanted a great wine list. I still want great food. I don't want fussy food. Some of our dishes are so unfussy, it makes me a little uncomfortable. But some of our dishes are pretty too. But nothing is, there's no tweezers used to make our dishes. I don't want that. I don't want, I, I can appreciate it. I know what goes behind it. It's not what I want. It doesn't fit the concept. Creating dishes that are complex in flavor, acidity, and, and, and spice. Yeah, complexity with layers of flavor is really what I want people to remember. A question that I have, because I, as I said, I looked online, it's, it's absolutely gorgeous, and, and the menu and all of the aspects, you could just see from looking at it how inviting and, and open it is. There's so many subjects we're going to get into, but I want to ask at this point in time, what your thoughts are, you know, obviously we're still in the midst of this pandemic, what your thoughts are in terms of, A, how to keep a brand and everything alive and engaged throughout this time and be sort of your forecast or your vision of what things will look like over the next three, six, nine months. Not asking you to predict anything about things that none of us, but just sort of a macro view of the hospitality, the restaurant space. Because, you know, from my vantage point, it's very clear to me that dining out, being around people, enjoying that part of life is as desirable and as elemental as ever. And that, you know, there are certain businesses prior to the pandemic that were facing disruption based upon the nature of what they did, certain elements of retail and others. It seems to me that the desire for food and community and getting together, even though obviously there's constraints, is, is, is as powerful, if not more so than ever. I'm curious as to what your thoughts are. Well, they kind of shift every day. You know, I got pretty excited when the vaccine was announced. And then yesterday I'm reading that the CDC is the question was asked, well, now once I get the vaccine, is it safe to go out? And the answer was, well, don't throw away your mask. You shouldn't go into crowds. So it's kind of the same fear um, and precautions. So I don't know. I just don't. look, eventually we'll get back to some sense of normality. I don't know how long that's going to be. I thought maybe next fall, but now I'm not even sure. I do think that in the last 12 months now, we're living in a new culture. There's been a cultural change, a mind shift. People think differently, which is good. 
they've been at home. They've been without all the shopping and all the external stimulation that kept them going and gave them that competitive edge. And it's for many people, it's just, I've lived without it. I'm fine. I don't know if I need to go back there or maybe a modified sense of what we had before. I think people are going to be different. It's going to be a lasting difference. And I think when it comes to dining, I'm I'm not sure if people will dine out less or maybe they've learned to enjoy eating at home or picked up cooking or I just don't know. I don't know. I think time will tell. Well, I, I, I think I, I, I appreciate that. And you know, just a quick pivot. My sense is that I, I think that there's going to be a tremendous desire and I think people are going to be going back out and I think people are going to be doing it and it's going to mean more than ever before. And I think that the industry itself, the, the restaurant hospitality industry is going to get elevated to such a place of prominence. You know, it's going to be an exact 180 of what's occurring now. That's sort of my prediction. People are going to, people are really, and I, and I can see it from speaking to people and it's just sort of a feeling I'm getting looking at it where I'm sitting, I think that the restaurant and the hospitality space is going to be on a level that it was never at before because I think people are going to view, I really do, and I believe people are going to view it in a way as a much more noble and fundamental and significant part of people's lives. I think that you're right. There's a lot of things that have changed and a lot of different things were maybe for the better, maybe for the worse. But one thing I think that has not changed is that people are social and people want to celebrate and people want to live and people want to. So I think you're right. I mean, nobody knows what the timing is, but I I really see at some point a very bright and, and significant, and I would emphasize that word significant elevation to this uh, industry. Well, I'm getting on that train. Yeah. I mean, I I, I really think so. Now, something that you've been working on that is incredible, and I'd love to get into some details on, is this organization, Heavenly Harvest. And I'll give out the website afterwards. But can you tell us what you've been doing with Heavenly Harvest, you know, what it is and how it's it's sort of making a positive impact out there? So back in between the Waldorf and Black Barn, when I was doing that consulting, one of the projects I was asked to do was to create a line of products for retail for the Chicken Soup for the Soul books, the publishing company. They wanted to have a line of food that was satisfying, nutritious, and wholesome. And that was the only reason I I agreed to do it is because, I, number one, I didn't really want to be associated with canned or frozen food or anything like that. But when they said that they wanted something that set them apart from everything else because of how it was done and knew that it was going to be more expensive to do, I, I signed on. And for, I think, a year and a half or two years, we developed 80, 82 products. We got about 30 of them out to the market. And at the same time that I got Black Barn Restaurant, they decided to sell that division. Or the, I don't know. They did some restructuring, and they, and they didn't continue on with the food line. But it, during that process, I would go to grocery stores and see, look for the white space. What What's missing? What, are the, what does everybody need that's not here? There's so much. And I saw this Uncle Ben's ready cooked rice. This rice, cooked rice in a plastic bag. It's not refrigerated. 
and it's not fermenting. Like, what is this? So I call my, then I saw this darkest tuna, tuna in a pouch bag. It's not refrigerated. I'm like, what is the deal here? So I call the food scientist that I'm working with on, on all the products, soups and baked goods and all this stuff. He said, yeah, that's, it's the same thing as canning or a jar, but it's in a pouch. The food goes in, it goes in a retort chamber until it reaches that temperature where it sterilizes and kills any bacteria. The food stays for 18 to 24 months, just like a can or a jar. I was like, wow. So it could just be rice and just, or can I put the tuna in with the rice? Sure. Can I put vegetables in there? He says, absolutely. How about spices and sauce? He says, you can put anything you want in that pouch. I'm like, holy cow, wow. So there was the idea to create full, complete meals in the pouch, and I will do it for those who need it. That came to me as a calling. That was that really wasn't my idea. That was given to me and kind of in my bones and in my soul, this is what I will do. And so I did it. And the, the name came to me, the logo came into my head. And I went to a lawyer and said, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to call it. And they said, well, you better give us seven different names because for sure, Heavenly Harvest is going to be taken. And I said, no, that's the name that came to my head. That's what it's going to be. And so they argued with me and they said, it's going to cost you more money second round. I said, just do it. So they did it. They came back and said, son of a gun, it's yours. So Heavenly Harvest is a, is a, I formed the 501c3 nonprofit, got the name, the logo. I raised money in different fundraising events. We've made a couple of hundred thousand meals. I've got eight different meal recipes. We've launched three, um, we've given them out a couple of hundred thousand meals through with Feed the Children to different food banks, organizations around the country. I'm waiting for another 130,000 meals to be made. And we're just about in the next couple of days to put out a year-end giving promotion to try and raise more money. All of the money goes to making the meals. My daughter runs the organization. I help her. Neither one of us take a salary. All the money goes to making meals. So the more money we raise, the more meals we can make. We're just a drop in the ocean. We need we need to make so many meals. We need so much money to make a difference. Right now with the pandemic, the situation has gotten so much worse. Food banks can't even handle it, making food or giving out food. It's a serious problem. It's just, I like to think that I'm a solution, but I, I want to be a more significant solution to a growing problem. Yeah, it is true. It's one of the most shameful aspects of this entire episode is the amount of people that have been sort of left behind and forgotten and in a needlessly callous way. Very, very, very shameful. What I'm struck by in listening to you, though, is, again, it's another aspect of your journey and of your story where you create something that is a byproduct of, of just, I don't even know what I would call it. It's not essence or authenticity. It's just like you have this energy or you seem to have this interaction with, with the world around you where you keep getting pulled or inspired in certain directions that are so impactful and, and so successful. But that's got to be a reflection of you as a person just being open to these things, you know, if that makes any sense. I've tried to make sense of it because I, I do see it. And I, I know that these blessings come upon me. And 
I was told by somebody who's extremely spiritual when they found out how grateful I was, the amount of gratitude I have for life and everything that I have. And they said that gratitude is the highest form of energy in the universe. And the more we can be grateful for what we have and show gratitude and keep that positive energy, more positive energy comes to us. And in that positive energy are ideas, creative ideas, introductions to people, introductions to situations that just bring us more blessings. So try not to complain, try not to be focused on what we didn't get and what we don't have, because we all do it, myself included. My wife catches me all the time, right? Honey, you get, look at how much you have. What are you complaining about? I'm like, you're right. You're right. I got to stop. I got to stop. It's all here for a reason, for a purpose. If I don't have it, it's not meant to hurt. Look, I'm sitting on an empty restaurant, right? We haven't operated in nine months. I may lose it. I don't know, but I've stopped complaining about it because if it, if I lose it, it just, it wasn't mine to have. And I was blessed to have it for the time I have. I may lose it. It may come back, but I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to be sad about it. I'm going to move forward. And I know that greater things are coming my way. The restaurant may or may not be part of it. Time will tell. I really love and I appreciate that. And it it, it is so true. And it's something I am always being mindful of myself whenever I catch myself. And like you said, we all do it not being as grateful. And I take a step back and say, are you kidding me with everything that's going on out there? And I also think you're 100% right. I mean, the energy that we put out there, which is ultimately the energy that we choose to create, has such a, it's the single most important thing that determines every aspect of our life. I mean, this has been a really terrific interview, John. I've really enjoyed getting to know you and getting to listen to these various stories. And I want to just I'm going to end with a question, but I want to make sure I get this out there, that if you want to participate in the phenomenal organization, uh, Heavenly Harvest, please go to heavenlyharvest.org. And the way you spell that is, I know we eliminate the E at the end, it's H-E-A-V-A-N-L-Y-H-A-R-V-S-T.org. No E at the end. No E, no even harvest. But if you put the E in there, you're going to find it. It's there. Heavenly Harvest. Org. We spell it a little bit funny for a couple of different reasons I won't get into now, but it's heavenlyharvest.org and every donation, every dollar, whatever people can do, it all adds up and it just becomes so helpful for us. You know, so powerful and so important at this time. So with all of your experience and all of your success, and, and you've not only given this such thought, but you explain it so beautifully in terms of leadership and all this other stuff. If you were to advise someone just getting started in in opening their own restaurant, or if you want to take it a different way, someone that's just getting started and wants to get into the culinary business as a chef, what would you say is the single one or two most important suggestions you would have for that person? Either, either one, whichever suits your fancy. Well, become knowledgeable. Focus, focus on, on knowledge. Become an expert at what it is you want to do, because that enables you to provide a product and service that stands out from other people, gives you the the recognition you need, and people are willing to pay more for quality product and service. So it makes you more valuable. But the other side of the coin is if you don't embrace people around you 
to support you, you won't go anywhere. So always work as a team player. Help the person next to you become better. Look to help other people, and other people will help you. And then you become a team player, and you're only as good. And really, all of us, we're only as good as the weakest person on the team. So help that person become better. And lose the ego. You know, it's it's a big problem in certainly our business, maybe every business, that when somebody gets into the position of manager or a chef, they think that they have to, that they think they're more important than the next person. And there's a difference between being important and being valuable, right? Be great, do things to make yourself more valuable, but remember, none of us are any more important than the next person. And that's, the ego is what really gets in the way and creates most of the problems in our lives and in the world, honestly. We all have one, it's healthy, it's not going any, it's the way we're designed, but managing the ego is, is critical. So just remember that none of us, no one's more important than the next person. And you can become more valuable than the next person by bringing value to the organization. And you bring value to an organization by helping others, by seeing things that need to be done and doing them, taking the initiative to do them without being asked. That could be picking up a piece of paper, taking out the garbage, rearranging the walk-in, rearranging the utensil drawer, making sure that the spots aren't on the glasses without anybody telling you. That brings value to a person. doesn't make them more important. John, this was such an enjoyable time that I got to spend with you and talk to you, and I've gotten so much value out of listening to you. You've been so inspiring and informative. I really can't thank you enough. For, for taking the time to do this. And again, for anyone that lo- is looking to, to learn more, you can look up John Doherty, D-O-H-E-R-T-Y. There's heavenlyharvest.org, an unbelievable organization, blackbarnrestaurant.com, social media at blackbarnrestaurant. And John, thank you again, man. This was was, was really something very special for me. Well, thank you. See, I, and I just want to say, everything that I've learned, I've learned through pain. I've learned through pain. And I'm I thank you for giving me the opportunity to share it, that maybe other people can adapt it to themselves without the pain that I had to go through. And maybe we've helped a couple of people rethink their tactics and and try a couple of new things to become successful and bring more value to their organization. So I I thank you. I, I really think so. And and more value to their life because again, I could not agree with you more. An emphasis on gratitude is the foundation. Without that, life's a tough thing if you can't adopt that attitude. So I, I think it brought a lot of value to a lot of people in a lot of different ways and certainly brought tremendous value to me. I've enjoyed this immensely. So John, thank you so yeah, much and nice. have an awesome thank day. You. You're welcome, Steve. Wow. I really, really enjoyed that conversation and I really learned a lot and was inspired by listening to John, his style on leadership, focus on praising people, focus on acknowledging people's need to be and treated as if they're significant because they are leading with an attitude of gratitude, thinking about others. And this from a guy who showed such humility and yet is such an accomplished chef and and really 
at the highest level in this industry. It was just such a pleasure, and I'm so grateful for John taking the time to speak with me. And I'm especially grateful to each and every one of you. The listenership of this podcast grows dramatically each and every week, and that's only because of you guys. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe. If you know someone that would enjoy this content, please refer it or recommend it to a friend. As always, I really enjoy hearing from each and every one of you, so please email me at steven, S-T-E-V-E-N, at wolcofoods.com, or you can DM me at wolcofoods. Love reading everything that you write, and it's such a joy for me. And I just want to again say thank you to each and every one of you, and have an awesome, awesome day, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods. Please be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And to learn more about Woolco Foods or Stephen Toberoff, please visit us at woolcofoods.net.